Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, we are looking ahead to June 5th. Eight states have primaries on Tuesday, including California, where the unusual primary system has Democrats worried about some of their top House target districts getting wiped off the map five months before the general election. We'll explain more in a moment. Plus, what does the White House have up its sleeve for the rest of the midterm year? We're breaking down the political plans emerging from the Trump administration, starting with the president's rally in Tennessee earlier this week. A quick reminder before we get started to our listeners to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And stay tuned for the end of the show for a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. One more note before we begin, we are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, May 31st, so it is all up to date as of then. Okay, let's get started. I want to welcome into the studio uh, Campaign Pro's house expert, Elena Schneider, back from the road. Welcome, Elena. Thanks so much for having me. All right, let's jump into our first data point, 1.4 million. That's how many people have already voted in the primaries in California, according to early voting data from Political Data, Inc. One of eight states, California is, up on June 5th, a little bit of a midterm Super Tuesday. We've got Alabama, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, South Dakota, and California, which is the main event. And because the state has a top two primary system, Democrats are concerned they might not get nominees in as many as three Republican-held House districts, where Hillary Clinton actually got more votes than President Donald Trump in the 2016 elections. Elena, walk us through the situation. Which districts are we talking about here? And why wouldn't a Democratic trending district have a Democrat on the ballot in November? Well, you've hit on a really uh, big issue for Democrats right now, where the uh, panic level has slowly and steadily increased over the last couple of months and weeks. We're heading into uh, a primary situation in which um, we've got three districts in Orange County. So this is a county that, as you noted, voted for Hillary Clinton first time in, in a number of cycles that they had backed a Democrat for president. This was sort of seen as the Orange Curtain, a place where conservatism uh, was strong, had delivered Ronald Reagan. This is and like where modern conservatism was born. Exactly. Arguably, and and they voted, uh, unit, you know, not unanimously, but voted against Trump and uh, and supported Hillary. And so Democrats see this as a key place where they could flip some significant districts uh, to to get on their path to taking back the House. And the issue is that there are so many Democrats who are so excited to run for office that all of these races attracted dozens of candidates, and the fields have thinned, but not enough. And those well-financed, uh, uh, credible campaigns are now all trying to, you know, jockey for the same pool of voters. And that dilutes the that dilutes their voting power. And unlike in almost every other state around the country, the, the primary system here is set up such that it's not a bunch of Democrats run against each other and one of them advances 
a bunch of Republicans running against each other and one of them advances. They're all crowded on the same ballot. Right. right? We're on a jungle primary system, which a couple of states are on in which this the idea of putting this forward was to, you know, in a place like California, where there are a lot of blue districts, that you would get a different shade of that blue, that different kinds of Democrats would be able to compete and get a different shade of representation. But that's not actually what's coming through in these battleground districts. Instead, these these, you know, multiple candidate fields are spreading out the vote and allowing for uh, two, you know, well-funded, credible Republicans to come through and be potentially the general election nominees. And it's particularly concerning in two open races where Ed Royce retired and uh, Daryl Issa retired. And then also in a third district where Dana Rohrabacher is running for re-election, but he's got a significant challenge by Scott Baugh. Uh, former former state legislator, former uh, uh, party official who has run a well-funded campaign, and, and Dana himself has sort of cratered in his popularity in the district. And so it, along with then several well-funded candidates who are running against each other. So in all three of these places, there's a very real possibility that uh, Democrats could wake up on June 6th and realize that they have no one to vote for in November. And we've seen this happen before. In 2012, which was right after redistricting, it was kind of the first year that this was the, the new system was implemented in California. Democrats were really excited about picking up the 31st district, which is a little further inland than what we're talking about now uh, in San Bernardino County. But um, they two Republicans ran against four Democrats, and the uh, two Republicans split uh, 50% of the vote, about 50% of the vote almost evenly, and the four Democrats kind of split their 50% of the vote a little more thinly, and two Republicans advanced in a, in a district that I think... Uh, President Obama carried that fall with something, you know, mid to high 50 percent of, of the vote. And but it had a Republican member of Congress for two more years until he he saw the writing on the wall and retired uh, because, you know, the, the district was not necessarily meant to to elect one, but because of the system, it, it happens. Right, exactly. And that race uh, in which Pete Aguilar, who now represents that area, who's a Democrat, um, his loss in 2012 haunts the dreams of Demo- you know the Democratic <laughs> Congressional Committee for, forever because they don't want that to happen. And so that's part of the reason why they've made it clear over the last two years that we've been writing about these House races that they plan to get involved diplomatically and mil- militarily in these primaries. To an, <laughs> you know, metaphor. Because that's how they feel like they want to prevent that again from happening. And the only problem is, is that how to do that, especially in this post-2016 environment, is a very de- delicate proposition. So there, I was out and talking to a number of voters in all three of these districts, and some of them felt like, look, this we do want the party involved. We do need help thinning these seals. We want to know who's going to be best fit for this, which is in striking contrast to the reaction of that we saw in Texas 7, where they intervened against Laura Moser. And in fact, people said the exact opposite and said, that's a reason why I want to vote for her. I don't want them coming in here and telling me what to do. I heard echoes of that in California. But I think there's a recognition in California that because of the top two system, there's sort of a very unique situation there. And so it's going it's going to be really interesting to see, then see who gets the blame if if they fail to get a Democrat it through in any of these in these districts. Who are they going to point the finger at? And it seems inevitable that it's going to get pointed at the party. <laughs> yeah. It's worth noting that Laura Moser lost more than two to one right. in that primary runoff, right? So, like, maybe the 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 noise uh, was not representative of what what actually mattered to, to voters in terms of that 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 perceived backlash to party intervention. Well, but to be fair, though, I think Jason Weston, who uh, who who lost, who came in third in that in that primary, in the, primary. In the initial primary down in Texas would argue that 
the D-trib helped Laura into that. Again, that's, that's a good point. Um, that is somebody who then obviously lost, so he had a reason to feel that way. But but bottom line, it, it, it definitely gave her a boost. It gave her a short-term lift. It gave her a short-term money boost. And it's a treacherous thing to get involved in. Right, right, right. But not a boost into like majority right. or even contention for a majority. Right, of, exactly. Let's let's jump back into California. So you talked about like the, the, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has known that this could happen. For years. Right. And then specifically with this cycle, I said their eye on it for a long time. So what are they and other party groups doing about it right now? So in the th- let's go through all three districts. So in California 39, which is one of the open races to replace Ed Royce, they are spending in, in, a, in against uh, Republicans. So in an effort to sort of dilute the Republican vote. But then also they endorsed uh, and added Gil Cisneros to their red to blue list, which is the, basically their, their tacit you know, endorsement of saying, look, this is the person that we want to get through this race. And they are obviously boosting him, but he's somebody who's been able to, as a self-funder, spend much of his own money in that race. As of right now, I don't think that they've done any positive for him. They've just focused on trying to... I think they have, actually. I think they've done some Spanish language ads. Oh, and they, maybe, that's totally true. They yeah. have. They've done Spanish language ads uh, in conjunction with him to try and boost him in that in that, uh, in that that voting block. El candidato demócrata al Congreso, Gil Cisneros, cree en el sueño americano porque lo ha vivido. But they've also spent against Republicans there. Uh, down to California 48, where Dana Rohrbach seat. They have spent uh, against um, Scott Baugh, who is the Republican running there. And they've also tried to, they've also boosted Harley Ruda, who's the Democrat who got their endorsement uh, pretty late in the game, actually, but who got their endorsement and uh, that they're doing a coordinated buy. So that means that they're spending with the campaign with positive messaging on his behalf against um, Hans Kirstedt, who's the other Democrat who, um, the other top Democrat in that race, who initially had sort of their, um, was recruited into the race by the committee. The committee soured on him. They've now started supporting Harley. Uh, Then we move down to the 49th, in which there is a whole, you know, four Democrats. They haven't chosen to endorse in that race. And instead, they've opted to spend against Rocky Chavez down there and uh, and try and... Uh, who's a Republican. Who's a Republican. And um, and focus rather on, on, on driving up Democratic turnout. So th- those are three di- very different approaches that they've taken to each of these races to try and address these issues. And uh, and certainly, I think in the 49th, there was a feeling that they wished that they had sort of come in more clearly because the California... Among some voters. Among among some voters, uh, because the California Democratic Party also did not endorse in that race because there were so many candidates. So they're 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 just overall was the sense while I was down there in every one of these districts of just chaos of con- chaos and confusion and agony over who's the best candidate. I'm not sure. And there's very you know there's a dearth of polling there. It's just a there's a real anxiety about what might happen. Uh, yeah. No, I thought I thought your story was really interesting. Just like getting into what's going through voters' minds as they try and sort through all this. I think that it's a lot to ask of voters to say to them, not only should you find a candidate, but you also need to think about the candidate that's going to get through a primary. That's not something that... Uh, in a 12-way primary. Exactly. That's not something that we ask of, you know, that, that operatives or candidates or parties ask of voters to do often. And it's a really big lift. And, and it's one that they're all taking very seriously because they are so activated by this. But it, it also then, you know, I also came across people who had no idea that this was potentially going to happen and were suddenly very anxious about it. So uh, it's... Uh, uh, how, how rude of you to, to, <laughs> to bring that upon their, their heads. 
Um, but but as you notice, the other problem here is that there's almost never public data in House primaries, right? right. So and and there's been a little bit that the campaigns have released, and the, although you always have to kind of look at campaign internal polling with a grain of salt, and a so, big grain of salt. Yeah, so that's like that's that's a tough situation uh, for 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 the voters to try and sort through that. Broadening out a little bit, like what else? What else are you kind of keeping an eye on on? On Tuesday, California is going to be the main event, uh, but we've got some other states with uh, potential House battleground races on tap uh, in November. We've got some Senate and governor's races percolating in California uh, as well, uh, as well as some other places. Yeah, we've got a a lot of really interesting uh, battleground races that we're going to get some answers on. Uh, Take Iowa. I think that that we've got two key races there. The Democrats are watching really closely, both Iowa 1 and Iowa 3. Uh, Iowa 3 is one where we've got... um, uh, it's sort of a, again another one of those sort of very a couple per, you know three people are running in this race and one is taking very much the Bernie Sanders route so much so because he's appearing in his ads um, he also he, he ran worked for Bernie Sanders. exactly he ran his uh, his Iowa operation this is Pete D D Alessandro and he's somebody who is, is certainly taking that that Sanders route and I just spoke to him this morning actually and part of his argument was that he feels like Democrats need to focus on uh, drawing out those independents who are who are leaning progressive and that's a tack that he's going about this. So sort of expanding the pool as opposed to trying to do Republican persuasion work. Um, and he's obviously running against uh, Sydney, Sydney, um, Cindy Axney, who got support from Emily's List. Eddie Morrow, who's dumping his own money into the race. So I know we, we've got some oh, more. Like a lot of archetypes exactly, of House candidates Exactly. A lot, a lot of the same trends <laughs> that we've seen in these primaries coming up over and over again. But that's going to be one really interesting to watch. And another uh, element out of California that I think is really fascinating is in two districts, we've got candidates who ran into 2016, who stepped up in a year where arguably Democrats were sort of in a tougher position to run down ballot and uh, chose to run again in 2018 and have expressed some real frustration that the D-trip has not come in and supported them in a real active way. So I'm talking about Douglas Applegate in California 49, which we were just talking about, that open race. He ran in 2016 and he nearly beat Daryl Issa by about 1,600 votes, came up short. And he told me when I was there uh, with him last week, said, you know, it felt like the D-trip had invited me to the dance and now they've stood me up. He hasn't gotten the hmm. same sort of support that he did last time. So it's a question of is somebody somebody like that or Brian Caforio who's running up in uh, north of LA in California 25 who also has another uh, really contested primary. He was somebody who ran in 16 and hasn't gotten an endorsement from the party. And so I think that it's going to be interesting to see what kind of residual name ID will come out of those races and whether or not they're going to be able to hold on to that or if people are really opting against, you know, white dudes. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, that, that's going to be interesting to watch. A couple other things that I'm keeping an eye on in California are, we've talked about this a little bit before, like the, I, I'm curious to see if uh, the Republican share of the vote is near or below 50% in any of these potential battleground uh, races, because we've seen in past years, uh, especially in 2012 and, and 2014, 2016 was a little weirder because you had the Democratic presidential primary still going, but not the Republican one. And so the voting was a little lopsided. But in 12 and 14, you saw in uh, a lot of these battleground districts in California where you have the all-party primary, the Republican vote in the primary is kind of like a ceiling for like what you're able to accomplish in the right. general election. And a lot of them fall below that. And so you have to think that in some of these target districts, if the Republican share of the vote is n- even near 50%, but definitely below it, that that could be a, a big danger sign for 
uh, for turnout in November. Exactly, exactly. Right. And then you know, on top of that, we've got in the in the governor and Senate races in in California, there are real questions about whether or not a Republican is going to be able to qualify through. You know, it's the the flip side of the, the top two question, right? Um, Republicans got locked out of the 2016 Senate race in California, uh, which Kamala Harris eventually won. Um, but uh, in the governor's race, you know, d- uh, President Trump has endorsed John Cox to try and uh, boost him through. And uh, there's, you know, question about whether Kevin DeLeon, the uh, progressive uh, uh, former state Senate leader, could end up running in the general against Dianne Feinstein in a Democrat versus Democrat race. So that that should be pretty interesting, too. I think another element to this is that if, if Democrats are able to lock out uh, Republicans in not one but two statewide elections, that that's going to do a lot to potentially depress turnout on the Republican side. It is a lot harder to run a campaign to convince people to come out and vote for a House campaign in an expensive media market like L.A. if if there's nobody else who's helping you hire up on the ticket. So that is something that Republicans are going to be watching as well as how that might hurt them in November. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, um, you know, it seems like some in the party have already kind of turned uh, turned their eyes toward a, a ballot measure uh, as a, a to, right. to repeal the gas tax the gas there tax um, as a potential turnout driver instead, uh, which I think is really interesting. And we've seen uh, House leadership and also Congresswoman Mimi Walters from Orange County and, and some other California Republican in Congress pour a lot of money behind that effort, uh, which, which I, I just think is really interesting. One other race I want to flag uh, before we uh, before we close out this segment is um, the South Dakota governor's race. I know it sounds super exciting, but the um, the for for those of you who don't live in South Dakota, um, <laughs> but. Uh, I, I just think that it's it's another example of a, a uh, Republican member of Congress, Kristi Noem, uh, who was elected in the Tea Party wave in 2010, uh, is now going home and running for another office, uh, but is is getting hit a little bit on that kind of connection to Congress by her primary opponent, Attorney General Marty Jackley. And we've already seen some uh, pretty mixed and to negative results for members of Congress me- trying to seek a seek a promotion. Exactly, exactly. Um, and and I'm I'm very curious to see what what happens there next week. Week, uh, there was a poll that came out yesterday that showed uh, Noam and Jackley pretty much tied, one-point separation, uh, and, and 10% undecided with a week to go. So, uh, Well, know, all the, the 12 people in South Dakota live there. Tell us who you want to support. <laughs> oh, well, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure the Nerdcast is very popular in South Dakota, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we're, we're ordering up the stats on that right now. Elena, thank you so much for, for joining us. Welcome back, and thanks for walking us through the situation in California. Thanks for having me. I'm going to go do laundry now. <laughs> All right, let's jump into our second segment, and we are changing out the guard in the studio for this one. I want to welcome in uh, Charlie Matessian, Senior Politics Editor. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Scott. Uh, White House reporter Nancy Cook, our NerdCast regular. Hi, Nancy. Hey, Scott. And making his NerdCast debut, uh, Politico's brand new uh, Senate campaigns reporter, James Arkin. James, thanks for being here. Yeah, good to be here. James, right. do you feel the pressure? <laughs> <laughs> Tons. <laughs> All right. Our next data point uh, is 26 percentage points as we uh, flip from uh, next week's House primaries to kind of the Senate landscape uh, and the emerging battleground in 2018. 26 percentage points was President Donald Trump's margin of victory in the state of Tennessee uh, a couple years ago. And that's a big reason why he was in Nashville on Wednesday with Congresswoman Marsha Blackburn, who's running for Senate. 
despite that margin, she faces uh, what's shaping up to be a pretty tough race against a former two-term Democratic governor, Phil Bredesen, who's still popular. And Republicans are hoping Trump can leverage his popularity to help lift Blackburn onto equal footing uh, in, in that red state. It provides a bit of a preview of what the White House is planning politically more broadly uh, this year. So, James, start us off. Uh, take us inside a little bit. What prompted Trump's travel uh, to Tennessee and the, the appearances he made with Marsha Blackburn? Yeah. Uh, simply put, this is a state that Democrats feel pretty good about where they are, and Republicans are more worried about it than you would think they would need to be. I mean, as you said, President Trump won it by 26 points. Uh, Tennessee hasn't elected a Democrat to the Senate in almost three decades. Uh, but Phil Bredesen is really popular. He won every county in the state the last time he was elected governor, and he's been leading in most of the public polls, all of the public polls, actually, I think, that we've seen in the race so far. And so they deployed President Trump to do what he does best, to you know go out and attack Phil Bredesen, to criticize him publicly, to give some fodder for what I assume we will see in campaign ads coming forward. And uh, it's a, an attempt to do two things, kind of show that Marsha Blackburn is going to be his ally in the Senate and get all the Trump supporters who voted for him and who still support him to vote for her, and also drag Phil Bredesen down to try and you know drag him through the mud, paint him as just your average Democrat. Uh, that'll make it much tougher for him to win there. And I mean, th this is not going to be a one-off, basically. I mean, we've seen a little bit of it already, but the White House is is kind of gearing up uh, to do this more in, in, in a big way in uh, other states around the map that have similar leanings to Tennessee, right, Nancy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there is a plan inside the White House political shop. I, I would say that there's you know, different factions in the White House that are trying to run the politics operation. So that's a caveat to say that there's sort of different thoughts on so this. So this could all change. This could <laughs> no, all change by the time no, the no, Nerdcast no. comes out on Friday morning. I, no, no, no. <laughs> I think like this basic strategy will be in place. My point is there's just like different people sort of vying for dominance in that shop. But I think the basic strategy of really targeting vulnerable Senate uh, Democrats in these red states that Trump won will continue to be a big thing. And I've been told, you know, by administration people that part of that is going to be to use uh, someone told me, you know, Trump's poison pen on Twitter to really bring them down, <laughs> um, you know, said in a menacing way to me, but also sort of delightfully. Uh, but I, I think that also, you know, there is a sense, too, that Trump is very good at defining opponents. You know, the New York Times had this great piece on midterms where they quoted Rob Collins, who's a Republican strategist, sort of calling Trump the definer in chief. And I think that that's another way the White House plans to use him because he is so masterful at branding and giving his opponents you know, little nicknames, as we saw during the 2016 campaign. And, and he's really good at distilling his opponent's uh, weaknesses into these nicknames. And these nicknames tend to stick. And I think that the White House sees that that can be a way for him to play a big role in these uh, races, too. Charlie? I think the travel, uh, there's a strategic dimension to it. But I mean, for, for the most part, it is really just reflects the seat of the pants decision making, the the narcissism and the chaos that drives most of what we see coming out of, of the White House. I mean, that's really the recipe for so much of, of what happens there. And, and what I mean by that is, the president is going to go to places that dovetail with the Republican electoral agenda, meaning the red states where uh, they feel they have the best pickup opportunities. And Trump would be very, will be very useful in those places. I mean, he won. When you take a look at them, uh, many of those uh, states handily in 2016. And we're, we're talking West Virginia, Indiana, Montana, Missouri, and North Dakota, right? Those are the five Democratic-held 
double-digit Trump states on right. the Senate map. Democrats are protecting, as you know, uh, incumbents in 10 states that Trump won. Five of those incumbents, uh, you know, including some of the ones you just mentioned, represent states where Hillary Clinton could not even crack 40 percent of the vote. She couldn't even win. The Democratic nominee couldn't even win four out of 10 voters in those places. So, you know, those are the kind of places where he's still popular. He can't go to many other states. And so he needs to lock down his base. And uh, I think the underpinning for all of this, the, the strategic underpinning is I think they're beginning to wrap their 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 arms around the idea that the president the the 2020 re-election is not going to be a standard re-election where where they the the, the goal is 50 percent they're not going to win a majority uh they're it's just going to be like the clinton presidency where uh both terms if he wins again will be with under 50 percent and they've got to figure out how to make that work they won 46 percent in 2016 to claim the presidency and I, I'm sure they're working on what the number is to get them to a second term, but it's not going to be 50 percent. And so that means much of the map is going to go untouched. They have to figure out how do we win the states we, we won last time and uh, where might we expand? Is, is Minnesota an option uh, based on what we saw last time? Are there, are, are there other states? But for now, at least in 2018, why not stick him where he, where he has the most impact? And that is the red states that we talked about. I mean, I think the tricky thing for the White House is, you know, Trump has, is, has traveled twice this week. He's going to Houston today. Um, and, you know, he was in Tennessee earlier this week. But the tricky for thing for the White House is twofold. One, the president doesn't really love to travel. You know, he likes to go to these campaign style rallies, but come home. So he doesn't like to go to places where he has to stay overnight. So that's a tricky thing for um you know, the White House political shop, they can't sort of have him do a bunch of events over a few days. And then the second uh, thing is that the president himself is very, very focused on keeping that conservative base in line. And that's sort of a touchstone for him. And he always goes back to that, to making sure that they're happy with his policy decisions. Um, But it becomes trickier with things like you know, trade and immigration, which have really been heating up lately, because those are things that, um, you know, Republicans broadly don't always, you know, he sort of changed the way the Republican Party has approached those issues. And they don't always, not everyone is sort of in lockstep. So like, for instance, with the policy that Jeff Sessions put forward about 100% prosecution at the border on immigration and separating families from children as a deterrent to get people to come to the country. Um, I know I'm going down in the weeds, but there is a point here. That is something that I think the president really sees as appealing to his base. However, I see that as a policy that really could potentially alienate, you know, more moderate Republican uh, voters, particularly suburban women. And then meanwhile, on on trade, you've got an interesting dynamic where that's, uh, again, another issue where Trump has kind of changed uh, the way the Republican Party thinks and talks about this, but in a way that potentially dovetails with what some of those Democratic senators in North Dakota and Montana uh, Ohio, you know, other states who who have tough races, uh, kind of gives them an opening to to maybe flip back some of those uh, Obama Trump voters. Right, yeah, James? yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think um, an interesting example in that is Ohio. I mean, it's not one of the top uh, races that we're going to see this cycle in terms of Senate races, but it's one where the Republican candidate is a pretty traditional free trade Republican. Uh, German AC is a congressman. Meanwhile, Sherrod Brown, the Democrat, is totally in line with President Trump on these trade issues. And it's it's really completely flipped the script. And we see other examples of that. Uh, so that's, a, you know, to your point, that's an issue where he kind of, you know, isn't in line with what we would consider traditional Republican values on trade. And that does give Democrats a real opening with a lot of the voters that he won in 2016 in these states. 
James, what what else is looming in in uh, some of these these big Senate races that we're talking about that, that President Trump is going to be heavily involved in? We've got a primary coming up in Montana uh, on the on the fifth, along with all those others, where um, you know whoever comes out of that is going to uh, presumably get the weight of the White House behind them and and quickly. Yeah, Montana's the next one in line. We have a, a couple of primaries left. That one uh, you know coming up, um, and that's a race that's kind of it floated under the radar for uh, most of the cycle, uh, right up until John Tester, the Democratic senator there was you know involved in, in vetting and uh, sinking the nomination uh, to you know for Trump's pick for, uh, to re- lead the VA um, and that Republican primary it's been a, a fairly nasty primary in the last couple of weeks the candidates have been kind of coming out and, and attacking there's been a lot of outside money spent uh, but it's sort of a sleeper race in that they didn't get their top picks uh, the party didn't get their top picks to run there uh, there are a couple of different candidates Matt Rosendale the state auditor is kind of thought to be the front runner most expect him to win there but you know he hasn't lit up uh, fundraising numbers uh, it's been a lot of outside spending on his behalf to to lift him there so he's going to need the full weight of the White House uh, to you know if he's going to defeat John Tester I think uh, even just a couple of weeks ago a lot of Republicans Democrats thought Montana was kind of falling out of the top tier of these races just because Tester was popular there and they didn't really have a, a set great candidate uh, that they were going to be able to rally behind. That's changed a little bit. But uh, yeah, that, that primary is going to be really interesting to see uh, you know, how much the White House wants to get involved for Rosendale after. I, I want to jump back to something uh, uh, Nancy mentioned earlier about the, the definer in, in chief role that, that Trump plays. Did he did he uh, tag Bredesen with a nickname while he was in Tennessee the other day? Or I, I think the most memorable line was when he said, Phil, whoever the hell he is, uh, didn't, didn't even get <laughs> Give him his full name. Uh, so Phil, former governor, whoever the hell that is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sleepy Phil. Phil, whatever the hell his name is, this guy will 100% vote against us every single time. Well, see, that, that, that's the thing, though. He tagged, you know, Joe Donnelly in Indiana as a sleeping Joe. And I, I kind of feel bad for some of the Republican strategists working on that race because they spent the whole year before that trying to make Mexico Joe happen because of outsourcing by the, the family company that Donnelly used to used to be a part of. And but now, you know, they just had to switch tax and to, to sleeping Joe because because Trump came in and, and decided that's that's what it was going to be. Well, I guess to show you how hard it is to actually make it stick. I mean, uh, politicians have tried it from since time immemorial and it never really works and it sounds lame and uh, <laughs> sort of pathetic and artificial and Trump turns out to have a gift for it it's, you know with the uh, the Jeb Bush criticism the you know the lion Chuck or crying Chuck and little Marco and I mean he's got all kinds what was Ted Cruz lion Ted or was lion Ted lion Ted low energy Jeb Dickie Durbin uh, mm-hmm. Sneaky Diane Feinstein. Uh, seriously, <laughs> Wait, that's how do you remember all these? Uh, you know Bernie Sanders because because they stick in your mind. Crazy yeah. Bernie is is Bernie. Uh, and there was obviously there was Crooked Hillary. Crooked Hillary, Pocahontas as uh, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. I mean, so this is a guy who thinks about it a lot, and I think it also just shows you how his mind works. Charlie, uh, one one thing we haven't mentioned is you know obviously Trump is going to be traveling to, and you you said he's going to be focused on kind of uh, re remaking the the Trump coalition to get behind some of these Senate candidates. Uh, but something he's going to be able to do to help candidates who are running in states where maybe a visit wouldn't help as much is fundraising. And we're seeing, uh, you know, the Republican National Committee raising a ton of money. And we also, our colleague Alex Eisenstadt had a big story the other day about Trump actually uh, planning to attend uh, sometime in the near future a super PAC fundraiser for the the kind of main group uh, or the, I guess the unofficial like flagship group backing uh, the White House, and which could could be involved in the midterms in a major way. Yeah, I think it's an important distinction that you're making right there that the president is very popular in some places and can go to some places on the Senate map, yet 
in other places, you know, he would be a disaster. Uh, you know, a perfect example, that a really interesting example, and you know what state I'm going to say. It's Pennsylvania. Like, uh, I mean, so here I thought you, you were going to say California, honestly. No, can you imagine <laughs> Trump going to California? But that's. But I do want to make this point. Like, he does not like to go. To, he did go to California finally. But, like, he broadly does not like to go to places where he is not liked and right. where there are protests. He doesn't go out of his comfort zone. If you take a look at the map of his presidential travels, it's very limited. Um, in the states that he goes to. but, but Back go, to your beloved Pennsylvania, yeah, Charlie. Okay, going, going back to the, the Keystone State. Okay, so you've got a, a, a marquee Senate race there. You know, it really hasn't shaped up or ripened yet. It's not really on the top tier the way people may have expected it. But uh, And Lou Barletta is a little bit of a Trump clone in that he was uh, he was somebody who was banging the drum early on immigration before the rest of Congress. Uh, you know, he, you've got a vaguely vulnerable uh, Democratic senator in Casey, a state that went for Trump. But do you think that... Um, Trump is an asset anywhere east of Harrisburg? No. Trump would be a disaster for Barletta. I mean, I think at some point they're going to have to have him in. Maybe they stick him in western Pennsylvania somewhere. Uh, But, you know, you can't have him anywhere near the Philadelphia media market because it would be a killer for Barletta. So the point is, you know, as long as he can't go in many competitive areas or is not an asset, the best possible use of the president is to just have him mint money for the party at these fundraisers. James, I'm going to give you the last word here. What's what's kind of the the you know your your one big thought, one big thing to uh, to look out for in terms of Trump getting involved in uh, on, on your beat uh, in in the Senate over the next uh, weeks and months? Yeah, well, I just want to I, I want to kind of piggyback off what Charlie said earlier. I mean, you think about we talked about you know these five states that that President Trump won uh, so overwhelmingly that have Democrats up. Those aren't really states that he's going to have to worry about in in 2020 for reelect. They're states that overwhelmingly support him still. But you look at states like Michigan, Wisconsin. In Ohio, Pennsylvania, that have Democratic senators up in 2018, then are states that the president won much more narrowly, Ohio more than those other three. But states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan were states that helped him win the presidency. They all are kind of falling off the map or at least falling well out of the top tier in terms of Senate races for Republicans this year. It's going to be interesting to see if he tries to get involved there, tries to do some rallies in Michigan or Pennsylvania, tries to kind of you know keep his base energized in those states in 2018 just as a sort of a precursor for what he's going to need for himself in 2020. That's a really good point. All right. I think we can, I, I no better point to end it on, actually. James, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, great to be here. And uh, Nancy, thank you as always. Oh, thanks for having me. And Charlie, thank you. Thank you, Scott. They call me help. They call me All right, as promised, we are going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan to take us out this week. Tim Groover, a former Politico Journalism Institute student, is going to help us out with the credits this week. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez, with production help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Tim. Listeners, if you are a Nerdcast fan who wants to read the credits, let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. That's how Tim did it, and that's how you can do it, too. Thank you again for listening. We will talk to you again next week. They call me help.